I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Jason Schmidt. But it's that collaborating together, I think, that academics and the research community does so well. And again, it does so on a different time frame than capitalism. Jason looks at the big business of for-profit academic publishing in his new documentary, Paywall, The Business of Scholarship. Should the world's knowledge and research be locked behind closed doors? Jason makes the case for open access on today's Team Human. And yes, you can support Team Human and even get a copy of my upcoming book, Team Human, by subscribing to our show. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can also read my columns based on the show's monologues at medium.com slash at Rushkoff. I've been working on the, uh, the audio book for Team Human, so I may sound a little bit hoarse. I've been using too much of my voice lately. But uh, I've got to talk because we have an election coming up in just a few days. And uh, I want to try to encourage people to use their uh, power at the, uh, at the polls, uh, whatever they may think. Uh, I feel like we've, uh, we've internalized some of uh, the way our political system really thinks about us. And it's time for us to stop doing that. I teach, uh, I teach Ed Bernays in uh, my propaganda class at Queens College. And I was just looking at the very first line of his book, Propaganda. And he says, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. 
Now, Ed Bernays did not mean this in a sad way. He meant this happily. This is the way things are. And I don't know if I'm ready yet to accept that sad premise that people are just too dumb, too uninformed, and too easily fooled to be entrusted with the vote. Even though most of the political class, at least the ones I've met from both sides of the aisle, seem to think so. I remember, gosh, it was back during George W. Bush's re-election campaign. Must have been 2004. I was invited to a fancy lunch with an ancient former Secretary of State and some of his associates. And it was at the height of the Swift Boat debacle when then-Democratic candidate John Kerry was being accused of lying about his tour of duty in Vietnam. And it was this whole big disinformation campaign. And it was the first one, really, of the internet era, because it was spreading not just on mainstream TV, but through the beginnings of viral social media. And this former secretary was interested in what I'd have to say about this as the, you know, the guy who came up with media viruses and all that. And I explained that, you know, don't worry, the truth will rise to the surface. And thanks to this informational bias of the net, that that this culture, uh, the Internet culture, would embrace things more like WTO protests and MoveOn.org than uh, stuff like the Tea Party or Fox News. And this guy, the the Secretary of State, said, uh, oh, my friend, when will you be ready to accept that the experiment of democracy has been proven a failure? And I was shocked. I I was stunned into silence. It was like it was like hearing Bernays speak directly at me. I felt like Tom Cruise at the end of Eyes Wide Shut, where he didn't know if they're like playing with him or if this was their truth. And. I do understand the line of reasoning. It's 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 an old one. It was, you know, the 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 line of reasoning that really began with Walter Lippmann when he got he got all disillusioned after he'd worked with Woodrow Wilson's Creel Commission to convince America to get involved in World War 1. And I think he felt bad about it, a little guilty or something, and he ended up writing this book public opinion, where he argued that the government needs to set up some kind of a council of experts because people are just are, are too confused that we're all just following the pictures in our heads, is the way he put it, and we can't really vote intelligently. We, we, we need instead to have intelligent, benevolent people figure out how we should vote and then just convince us to, to support those policies. And this has... This view of democracy has characterized uh, voting and 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 policymaking right from him and Ed Bernays right through guys like Roger Stone and Frank Luntz. So the idea is to put pictures in people's heads, whether they're true or false, that get them to vote in particular ways. You know, and I guess you know the the politician I had spoken to, the Secretary of State, he was right in his assessment of the failure of democracy at that moment, even back then. You know, 2004, Fox News and Rush Limbaugh were more effective at winning adherence through emotionally charged hot-button appeals than Democrats were with uh, logic and and facts, that people are just so easily swayed by the craft of storytellers and advertisers that 
uh, how can we expect them to be able to vote? And I thought, naive little me, I thought this problem was kind of solved when we elected Obama, because here's this cool clinician making appeals to rationality. I mean, he was nothing if not cool. But when you really want to think about it, Obama was really as much the beneficiary of all the romance that was surrounding his candidacy. You know, even if that wasn't the real sell, that was the story people were responding to. You know, if the Democrats had been true wonks at the time, they would have voted for Hillary Clinton, you know, rather than some young guy with no international experience. So even eight years of Obama doesn't disprove the possibility that democracy failed. You know, and now, more than ever, uh, the, the political landscape's characterized less by facts than by nostalgia and attacks and the melodrama that we instinctually respond to. And the pollsters, the policy pushers, they don't give this manipulation a second thought, right? To them, democracy is not the right to be members of an informed electorate. It's rather, it's the right to do whatever is necessary to make that electorate vote the way you want them to. They're just the masses anyway, and the masses are a means to an end. You know, and that's really Orwellian, but... It's the predominant way of thinking, not just on the on the Republican side, not just talking to, you know, Frank Luntz and changing estate tax to death tax or or uh, global warming to climate change in order to appeal to people emotionally. When I challenged him, when I met him, I challenged him about all that. And he said, well, do you want to win? <laughs> As if that's the whole thing. If you want to win, then you're going to be willing to do whatever is necessary to win. And. The left is becoming guilty of this, too. I mean, for all the left's talk of going high when they go low, the Democrats, at least the establishment Democrats, are less interested in describing the logic of their own policies than in frightening people about their opponents. Back when when Hillary was running against uh, against Trump, I tried to get in touch with the the Democratic National Council or the various PACs, and I, I wanted to give them a mimetic analysis of Hillary Clinton because I really believed that they were positioning her wrong and that the the policies that they were trying to put forth weren't they weren't resonating with voters because of the preconceptions they had about her and that that really needed to be fixed. And nobody was interested in talking with me. They all assumed that that Hillary would win. And then as soon as the election was over, all of a sudden I start hearing from people. There were all these little impromptu sessions at, at various apartments in New York. I was at one at Eric Schneiderman, the former New York State Attorney General was at, and, you know, Adbusters people. I was at one with the Yes Men. And, and at one of them, I met the head of the Center for American Progress, which is, you know, the most Clintonian of the political analysis groups. And that was one of the place, places that I wanted to pitch my, my Hillary stuff. And now, finally, they seemed interested in what I had to say. So I was talking about uh, how we have to uh, disseminate a campaign of, of, you know, social good, of, of teaching communities how to do mutual aid. And don't call it left, don't call it right, but that if people become acquainted with mutual aid and helping their neighbors and even things like local currencies and food banks, that they would... Uh, 
become more familiar with really what are leftist policies and then be more favorable to them when elections happen. And she said, oh, my gosh, there's no time for that. Can't you just do an analysis of Trump? She wanted to drive up Trump's negatives. Those are her words. And there's a logic to that, because she thought that if I could figure out the ways in which Trump was the most vulnerable, then she and her team could go on CNN or MSNBC and highlight all those negative things. You know, and and I get that. I get that. But this has been the de facto strategy of establishment Democrats right up through this midterm election. And if the blue wave fails to materialize next week, it will be because of this strategic failure. So call me naive, but I believe Americans really do care how their votes will impact the world in real ways. And and Emphasizing negatives and triggering crowd panic and playing to our outrage or going low, it really it gives up on real democracy. And it's not even working. You know, every time that that the left uh, emphasizes Trump's negatives, it just positions him even more as the protagonist of some national story. You know, he may not be a good person or or nice, or a good president. He may even be a would-be tyrant with a personality disorder. But he's also, as far as the national story is concerned, what we see on TV, he is a man under constant attack. So eventually, no matter how dastardly a character, whether he's Frank Underwood, or or Gru, or Richard III, or Regina George, you know, the, the audience can't help but empathize with that character's plight when they're on the defense. You know, like him or not, everyone recognizes the humanity in his wriggling and excuse-making, his lying, his workarounds, even his tantrums. He's the only human character on the screen. So what if Democrats acted instead as if they believed in democracy, right? If they believed in the ability of American citizens to understand issues and make informed choices, what if the left stated what they believe in policy-wise and then see if democracy can work? I get it. A lot's at stake. And many Democrats believe that if they don't win at least one chamber of Congress this election, that the electoral process could be rigged forever toward the current majority party. But real democracy demands an informed electorate. The Democrats will always lose in an unprincipled brawl. You know, the right can argue that unbridled, no-holds-barred competition is the basis of their whole economic and geopolitical philosophy, but Democrats don't have this option. Besides, if, if the left undermine the fundamental premise of democracy in order to win elections, what's left? You know, if I could go back to that swanky restaurant with the former Secretary of State, I'd say no. I'm not ready to accept that the experiment of democracy has proven a failure. Not yet, anyway. This midterm, we have a chance to remember what it is we're doing this for, what this is really about, what's our role in this process, and whether or not we're up to that challenge. Are we even willing to show up at the polls, much less understand the issues we're voting on? Our politicians and their propagandists have lost faith in our ability to vote purposefully. They truly believe the democratic experiment has failed. I think they're wrong. 
But the only way we can effectively defend ourselves against the folks on both sides who would underestimate our intelligence, our competence, our collective will, is to vote. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, Jason Schmidt, whose documentary, Paywall, The Business of Scholarship, is screening at universities across the country. Universities are about educating humans, and there is literally no reason to keep information from people. The scholarly publishing industry makes about a 35 to 40 percent profit margin. How is it okay for this whole industry to be making so much a profit margin when there really aren't any inputs that they have to pay for? Students, I definitely hit a paywall. I hit paywalls a lot. How do you feel? I feel really pissed. So, Jason, so you... I guess let's start let's start at the now and then go back. So you right. just came out with a movie. I did. That's yes. called It's called Paywall the Business of Scholarship. Paywall the Business of Scholarship, which we can see. I mean, I started watching it and then you can see it kind of for free. And then all of a sudden it stops this movie and says that you got to pay to watch it. You hit a paywall. Yeah. But yep. then you can just click the play button and you keep going. You just keep playing. It's yeah. it's not actually it's, it's it's a fake paywall. I know, but it reminded me of my really my whole life and and i remembered then the reason why i started teaching yeah. at nyu at itp mm -hmm. uh was because i was working on a book and trying to do research and i kept coming up against paywalls so i figured if i could adjunct at nyu and make it wasn't a lot make like three thousand dollars a semester sure i would get like ten thousand dollars worth of access to all of those library things proquest yeah. oh. and document this and jstor yeah. and those things and science direct and yeah all these great services and it did seem to me like the enlightenment ideal of like Al Gore when he was first describing the internet as this place to connect the world's information and we all get access and I had gopher searches and FTP searches and I could download weird documents from University of Tel Aviv sure. that that was gone it got closed the commons got privatized was it always that way or did something happen I think it was something that happened I mean I think that scholarship started out as a way to disseminate knowledge to human kind of, you know, the human species. And then in the the interim from, you know, 1665, when research journals came came out, I mean, they were they were meant to really diffuse scholarship. And, you know, down the road, and that's actually kind of in a, in a more short so scope, um, you know, we've got it, the academic structures have have been sort of duped into these, these uh, contracts and specifically what's called big deal formats, where you buy all these journals now in like a cable subscription means. And that was very different than what the 1665 or even the 1985 model of scholarship was when you bought it you still still universities purchased it the costs weren't nearly what they are today and let's say 1985 when you purchased it you owned it for perpetuity and that was a very different model but they than, owned a thing right a journal a was an object it was an object it was and, a pressed object right and they would stick them on shelves in these uh sometimes they would bind them together into like their years and sometimes they'd stick them in these like leather foldery thing. So it'd be right. like four copies of the Journal of International Blah Blah. Right. You'd go to a library to find it, to read your article. Yep. Talk or, to a reference librarian, get your directions to that article. 
and you would, then you would either Xerox it in the library or yes. read it in there. Maybe if you were special, you took it home. But usually those things yeah. stayed in there. Stayed in the library often. I, I remember spending you know hours in front of that Xerox machine, copying, copying. Yeah, of course. Right. But at least you could get your hands on the thing. And, and in a capacity, you sort of owned it then. You, you, you had a tangible copy that couldn't be taken away from you unless you had a house fire. Right. And was it against the rules to take Journal X in the library and, and put a dime in the machine and copy no, out? I, I was at University of Michigan, and specifically, I remember there was a lot of kind of copyright uh, gray area. And so they would have us go across the street from the university in our graduate course, and we'd have these, you know, literally like 500, 500 page, you know, uh, reading supplements, we'd take them, put them on the Xerox machine ourselves, and we would have to go there with somebody helping us, and it would be our finger that would hit print, and it would go through the print process, and that was kind of a loophole for those copyright, uh, you know, protections for that. But then and, we were kind of breaking a rule, though. Oh, but who? We're not getting paid. We're so I mean, we're breaking a rule for companies. We're not breaking a rule for academics. Academics, I think, and if I can speak so liberally, I don't think actually have a problem with the sharing of knowledge because we're never we're never compensated in any way, shape, or form. In the process of creating, we we create this information as a you know, as a service to our discipline. We edit this information as an editor for our journals to to make sure it's quality. Again, as a service from an academic scope, it doesn't really become a financial means. It, it becomes financial in a different you know different capacity as it goes to publishers or scholarly societies. Right, but so I mean, publishing the, the there's a whole bunch of reasons to do it, but in academic publishing, a lot of it is like new professors or assistant professors, they need to get like five or 10 journal articles published in order to apply for tenure right. or something else. And tenure hasn't changed in 150 right. years. So they have that. And then, so these companies, journal company, Elsevier or whatever they sure. are, yep. they're doing a service by organizing a peer-reviewed journal for the advancement of your career. They are absolutely doing a service and they're providing, you know, some of the, the highest quality journals that are some of the most respected journals, Nature or Science or Cell or some of these, you know, really high, what they call impact factor. Right. And impact factor is something we should talk about down the road as well. It's, you know, a quantitative measure that, you know, really kind of, you know, talks about the, the scope and the breadth of that journal. There's a lot of faults with that, and I think that's you know, something that the whole world is kind of focused on is this impact factor, um, quantitative nature of, of, of these journals and making sure if you publish in that high-impact journal, your, your success for the tenure plea is much more likely to be well, heard. Right, because, well, if that's the product, that's, right, and we can go to that. If the yep. product for now is uh, uh, the attention and metrics I need to win tenure or an advancement, then I want to be at a journal that's in the whole digital sphere in such a way that that a lot of people are going to see it and footnote it because the more references I get, it's like getting likes on Facebook. So that's academics right. have exactly. this many references to your article, and then you can say, oh, I had 79 references and then that's a more important article, and then I get more more love for my provost. You get more love, but you don't actually know that the impact factor is talking about your article specifically. You could be next to a great, you know, great article on stem cell that's getting tons of traction. Yeah. And you're 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 not the cool kid, and yours is just always flipped over. But you're still getting that prestige because you somehow snuck into that, you know, that high high brand identity, uh, you know, cover to cover right. journal. But you're saying now that that 
in the old days, yes. these journals got something, you know, so they would sell a subscription to the library for $400 a year or mm -hmm. whatever it is. And if they're an important enough journal, sure. then enough libraries get it and they're making some money and the money they make on the high impact journal, maybe it even subsidizes some of the low impact ones that don't have enough sales, you know, the, 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 the journal of, you know, raisin technology, Absolutely. you know, which is yep. not that many people studying raisins. Yes. So, and God bless. So now they're being subsidized or they're break even. And then when the internet came around, we first all thought, oh, this means those journals are all going to die. 1995, Forbes magazine wrote an article saying the, the internet revolution was going to change the tide. Right. And the first thing it was going to affect, it wasn't going to affect music or movie studios. Those were those were solid. And this, this 1995 article said the first thing that would be the, the icon to fall would be scholarly publishing. Because researchers are so progressive and, you know, have, have went on the internet for, you know, for decades at that right. point. Telnet in the 80s and 90s, you know, ARPNET and, and using this is a, a form of communicating that surely this internet revolution is going to lower the cost margins and and really kind of push right. out the publishers. And the exact opposite actually had happened. You know, from 95 on, if you look at the scope of that's where the problem started is once it became digital, the profits went, you know, through the roof. We're, we're at a profit margin of 30 to 40 percent for for-profit uh, publishers. That's more than Facebook, more than Google. But why should that be? I mean, so if now most people, if you have an internet connection and a public library card at this point, most public libraries have, have access to all those no, journals, don't no, they? No, they do not. Not in the United States. Not at all. No, that's see, that, that's the other kind of big conundrum here is and I feel so bad as a professor, my students who are, you know, running in four different directions at once trying to get a degree and trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life. Uh huh. They, they have access to everything, but it's at the wrong time of their career, right? They're 18, they're 19, they're 21, well, that's 22. Why they don't, that's why the companies don't mind giving it to them. Yeah, well, but when, <laughs> when they're 25 and 26 and thinking, hey, I want to do this startup company. I want to really understand, you know, bio, you know, biogenetic research. Right. Good luck if and you're not a grad student in the United States. Good luck getting access to that. It's it's it, it, there there is a very you know clear and defined access point of of access and that's that's really in my film pretty prominently yeah. is talking about you know and these librarians have to turn away the public for publicly funded research which is really counterintuitive to what a librarian has devoted her or his career to and that's problematic for us as a society mainly for synergy. Doug, right. I want synergy. I want one plus one plus one to equal eight. And the only way to do that is to have diverse people and diverse perspectives. And I think the way that it, we're operating in a scholarly kind of society with these profits and who can afford to have access, it's the opposite. It's a homogenized. 40% uh, of what's published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the top journals, Anywhere. presumably, 40% yeah. is published within, the, within 150 miles of Boston. So what does that say? I mean, so well, that's why they call it New England, right? Well, yeah. Well, talk about privileged. But if you're over near Denver, is there a, a Midwestern Journal of Medicine? I'm not talking about Denver. I'm talking about Nepal. I'm talking about you know Brazil. I want I want the right. globe to have, and I'm I'm talking about you know Zika and, and Ebola and you know these major things for you know for humanity to overcome, and we're, we're not allowing our engines to fire on all eight cylinders, Detroit metaphor from my genetics, you know, we're firing on four or five cylinders because not everybody has access because of the costs, because of the profit margins. So if you're going to open it, I mean, so, so this was, this was Aaron's, uh, dream, Aaron Schwartz, right? Aaron Schwartz. Yep. Now he was an activist as well as a, Absolutely a, was. a thinker. So yes. what he did was, a. uh, 
an open access experiment, really, as a public statement. As an MIT student, he, he downloaded the JSTOR catalog and you know got caught doing so and had some serious repercussions between both MIT and JSTOR and pushed him to the brink of you know human capacity. And that was a, you know, and, and some some idea that's I mean it shows the power between behind this. You know you think you know we're talking about academic scholarship. It doesn't sound like the most you know like you know dark kind of foggy uh, kind of transaction but there's been a lot of people that have had to put everything on the line for this because there 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 is so much backlash and there's so much power and there's so much kind of you know uh, disinfecting the the trail so as a journalist i started writing about open access well well before i did as a filmmaker and I would, you know, first of all, the articles I wrote in open access, they got massive reads, you know, four or 500,000 people right. around the globe wanting to, again, amplify and diffuse this off of Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, and, and I thought, well, how profound this is, like, you know, a whole like, community is like starved for access. So then I started speaking out more and more about this. And the more I'd speak to other journalists, those it happened like four times this process. Uh-huh. I'd speak about the, the need for open access and specifically the profit margins, $25.2 billion a year going into for profit publishers, Elsevier having a 35 to 40% profit margin. And what happens every time was then, then that I would be contacted by a PR representative by one of these for-profit uh-huh. com- companies, you know, saying, what are you doing? This is just completely, you know, this isn't true. And they'd contact that journalist and try to, you know, p- put right. across their statistics. The journalist then would contact me and say, you know, do you stand behind what you said? And every time I say, yeah, no, I, I'm yeah. I'm clear with what I said and I I, I stand behind that. And it, But that show, gosh, there's there's not only a, a, you know, so much energy in it, but there's a, kind of like a disinfecting, like the, the trail behind it as well. Right. Wanting to get that, that whole message in, in, with, with no kind of backlash there. And and so seeing that, again, as kind of an investigative journalist or filmmaker, you're thinking, okay, what's going on in this equation then that, you know, you have this much kind of funding to, to make sure it's it's almost like a full Disneyland experience. And so I, that's you know kind of where I wanted to go as a, a filmmaker and so right. kind of unpack this. And and so, you know, my crew and I traveled 45,000 miles for the last year and a half. Uh, we had a super small grant, but I have five great uh, media savvy animation and uh, kind of uh-huh. film students that helped me on a shoestring budget. And we were able to piece together what I think is, you know, kind of, if nothing else, it's a, it, it, it gives a story and kind of a face to the movement. Open access is such a disparate, and, and, and that's what this is all about, is open access to scholarship and open access to information. And it's such a disparate community, and there's so many different methods, and there's green open access and gold open right. access and diamond and platinum. I mean, it sounds more like Tiffany's than it sounds yeah. like, you know, I'm like, I'm so confused just, you know, hearing all those if I'm, you know, a new scholar. So I wanted to make kind of, you know, a, a narrative that's, that talks about this whole movement. And so that's that. I mean, that's what we've been doing, and you know, we're pretty proud of the reception so far. So we've, you know, we have uh, seventy-five thousand people have viewed the film. We have three hundred and twenty screenings at universities around the world uh. now, and it's it's kind of you know taking on a life of its own. And you, you hope you can you do that. You never know. You you know better than anybody. You're sitting in an office editing. I'm sitting there editing, and you know, quiet solitude for months uh-huh. and months, thinking, is this thing at all any good? I don't know if it is, and nobody's saying they like it. And then all of a sudden, it starts to you know right. create that snowball effect. And you're like, okay, damn, I, I'm, I'm happy I did this now. Yeah, I mean, well, you were able to do two things. One, you, you, you found moments somehow in a nonfiction medium, and then you connect things. I mean, the, the, the part that's most interesting to me is the moments in the movie where, where this, this seemingly random system coalesces. Sure. So for you, I mean, what were some of the biggest moments of discovery for you as you were making this thing? 
biggest moments of discovery for me as I'm making this. Well, you know, going to the the Royal Society, which is really the the foundation, holy grail for research journals. To better understand the research process, we traveled to where research journals originated, the Royal Society of London. I'm Stuart Taylor. I'm the publishing director here at the Royal Society. The Royal Society is Britain's National Academy of Science. It was founded in 1660. A few years after that, in 1665, Henry Oldenburg launched the world's first science journal called Philosophical Transactions. And that was the first time that the uh, scientific achievements and discoveries of early scientists was uh, formally recorded. Flipping through the 1665 Philosophical Transactions, literally the first research journal on planet Earth, and having three different copies and going through them and seeing what that, that represented, and seeing how that's the Royal Society, you know, which is still extremely prominent, is dying, is is really massively pushing towards open access. And, you know, it's, it's not happy with where it's getting. It's not happy with the movement that's that's behind it. And, you know, it's really supportive of this this project. And, and going this is in, the RSA that's still there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, they have. I mean, they have an open access office, and they're. And they're, did you do? A, did you show the movie there? Uh, I have not showed the movie there yet. It seems but like I, a, I, yeah. they do a, a lunch. Yeah, event we're there. showing the uh, the British Library, which is uh, one of my favorite. Li- yeah, yeah, my favorite library on planet Earth. We're going to be there uh, January thirtieth for a screening. Um, so hopefully, Royal Society can can come there, and they've been nothing but supporters. But so you know, hearing hearing the support for you know, open access and, and talking to Af- like the executive director of African libraries and hearing how, you know, Elsevier, which is the you know, biggest publisher, is, is nothing but a pain in the neck, to use her words. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, yes, Elsevier is a, is a pain in the neck for us in Africa because uh, their prices are too high for us. They don't want to come down. You know, this isn't just about economics. This is about empowering, you know, countries and regions to the equation. Right. So I mean, that yeah, that that is. I mean, you could look at it like patented drugs or anything else. So, yeah. Oh, uh, well, the, so you're going to die because you don't have the money to, you know, pay for the the patented medication, which only costs six cents to make. But so you know, but but there's funding. I mean, part part of the reason to fund something is so that some, you know evil dude can sit in his mansion on the top of the hill. But part of the reason for funding is so that the the research and publications can happen in the first place. We have a, a person in our film, John Woolabanks. He's a Sage uh, Bio Networks uh, open uh, activist. And he's talking about the lockup of research and how that is inhibiting the understanding of what drugs we as a human species should take. Because, you know, if you're a biomed startup, you don't have access to all of the to do text mining and data analysis. Right. You don't have access to that. So his big his big moment in our film is he's saying there's more companies pursuing automated cars. And there are there are more companies competing to make self-driving cars than there are to process the biomedical literature and help us decide what drug to take. And that is a direct consequence of the lockup of the literature. That's a fundamental fucking problem. Yeah, hey, I love that I have the word fucking yeah. in my film because I feel like, you know, it's a, a cl- kind of a climax for the storyline. Yeah. But I mean, it really shows the, the kind of, you know, rage that's associated with this and how it's it's really inhibiting the the broad access to, to research that can help cure diseases that we, will, we have at the you know, front of our minds as a species. But it's part of a societal trend. I mean, that, that you, could, you can trace back to capitalism and the monarchy. Yes. You know, so, you know, as, as Buckminster Fuller would tell the story, there were these great pirates 
out yes. there who knew how to navigate. They knew different languages. They knew how to do uh, economic transactions and currency exchange. Yeah. They they could fight. And the kings were threatened by someone who had all of these disciplines under their uh, in, in in their in their tool set. So part of the reason for setting up universities with very separated disciplines was to prevent there from being a generalist who knew everything. Interesting. And likewise with capitalism, I mean, if you don't separate out the thing, you can't charge for it. I mean, you you need to make your information scarce or how are you going to uh, make money off it? So if we're trying to use capitalism to, s say, cure cancer, it's going to be really tricky because now yeah. everybody's competing with closed closed source research to find their own cure to make money off rather than collaborating together to actually solve the problem. But it's that collaborating together, I think, that academics and the research community does so well. And again, it, it does so on a on a, a different time frame than capitalism. I mean, we're creating this research for free. We're getting using public funds to to create this research. We're not, you know, the the research community is not being compensated for the actual act of, of the research or the editing. Um, so there's, I mean, the, the equation here, I feel like is different than a lot of capitalistic uh, entities. You think. Well, that, but that's why, that's why we're saying that this is off the chart profitable because, right. because there's no inputs. Yeah, I want to be a business that has no inputs. I'm selling air and that's my new job. Yeah. But it's not just off the charts profitable for the companies that would exploit these biases, but it has, it has either, uh, risen from or informed an academic culture in America of competitiveness and pettiness and turf battles. I mean, you go all the way back to, you know, DNA, Watson and Crick. Yeah. I mean, they stole the thing from a woman downstairs, you know? Sure. They, they, and then, so if, if, if the leading scientists are already stealing and claiming research, then why wouldn't the, the journals that serve them reflect the values of their culture? Yeah, well, that's, that's a good point. I mean, so it's not like academics, oh, we're all so good. No, oh, you know? no, absolutely and, not. And look oh, at these mean Elseviers exploiting sure. us. No, absolutely. And, and, and this this whole movement, I mean, there's there's so many kind of counterintuitive fights among among these activist organizations for open access, and these scholars. I mean, there's just, it's not a congruent message by any means. Right. And so without collective action, Especially, in, I, I feel like I'm, half of my kind of recent film tour has been kind of, I apologize for the United States of America regularly, you know, because we, ha we have very little action we can take. We have all these independent consortia that, that, that select the journals and we're all, every single university or a good portion of them have em embargoes that they, or they can't tell what they're paying for the, the research journal. So it really creates a, you know, massively unfair market that you can't even, you can't even compare a shop. So I asked Rutgers University, I said, could you tell, you know, me in the film what we pay, what you pay for your subscriptions? Could a university like Rutgers tell somebody what they pay for? A, no, we no. wouldn't, no. Because you're contractually well, um, bound not to. Yeah, and I mean, it's a, this is the way it works. So again, it's not up to me to comment on that particular aspect, but it is the way it works. And um, it, it's the way it works with all publishers, not just the ones you hear about. You know, and no, none of these universities can. Because they each think they're getting some special deal or well, whatever. That, maybe for the first year or two, it seems yeah. like a darn good deal. You, you know, you sign that clause that you're not going to be able to share that information. But then, you know, a decade or two, you, you're not aware of what your, your other universities are paying. And well, a public university has to say what they're spending. It, it's still a tricky, tricky yeah. kind of process to figure it out. You, you, right. You, 
It's there's been a couple of Freedom of Information Acts that have worked well. Um, one was done over in the UK in 2014. Um, there was a Freedom of Information Act done in California in 2007 and eight. Uh, but they're they're few and far between uh, to to really understand what the the full scope is that all these universities are paying. I mean the fun the fun part at the beginning of the film is when you are asking everybody if they uh, ever came up against a firewall. Yeah, paywall. A paywall. Yeah. Yeah, paywall. <laughs> yeah, firewall is a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, but it, it was funny because then I started to think about Medium's new model. Sure. So, you know, and I've been doing a column on there, and Medium's model is they want to create an ad-free kind of a writing commons mm -hmm. is the way they look at it. So everybody throws five bucks into the pot per month okay. to be like a member of this thing right. or a reader of this thing. And you can write also. And then whatever pieces get the most views and claps and approvals and comments and whatever, get the, get a percentage of the common pot, yeah. but it still has a paywall. I mean, so you can read three or four things for free. Mm -hmm. And then after that, if you want to be reading this stuff, that's part of this commons, you gotta, you gotta participate. And on a certain level, though, as a someone who wants to make a living writing right. and who's willing to tough it out in the doggy dog, you know, <laughs> quest for views or whatever sure. it is, yeah. uh, I'll go for it. I mean, <laughs> other than that, I mean, other than a paywall of some kind, we end up being part of the attention economy. We end up being part of the the advertising world, which is even worse, isn't right. it? No, I think I agree with you. You know that the, the advertising, you know, broad human bandwidth of of our attention. I mean that that's not a, a healthy model as well. If, if all of our revenue is driven off of that, you know, attention bandwidth, that's that's tricky. You know, so, but I don't think that's a congruent conversation to the scholarship. I, I mean, mm. I, I, I'm I'm saying that scholarship is different. Scholarship is absolutely different. You know, first of all, again, it, I mean, I think it has a, a, a bit of a, a different input process. It has a different uh, readership process, and if it, it, it forms a different function, and there's you know all these massive philanthropies and funders that are you know funding this research as well so there's there's different inputs that are going into the into the stream as opposed to um, you know somebody that just needs those likes or you know right I mean but claps. all the inputs are crazy and I feel terrible but you know I'll get asked oh will you please write a chapter for such and such a book about you know the future of digital blah 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 and it'll be you know oh we want eight thousand words yeah. we want you to do all this research and footnotes and stuff and nine drafts with us. Oh. And we want to pay you nothing, right. and it's like, wait a minute, why? They don't why? even. They didn't even say the exposure. We're going to give you exposure. You know that they're because not going to give. You're not going to get any exposure. No, and it's going to be a twenty book, people are going to read gonna it. It's going to be a book that costs one hundred and forty dollars. Right. Nobody's gonna, yeah. So no one's going to buy it. It's not going to be anybody's textbook. No kid no. is going to read it. Nobody. No. So what's going on? What's what is this for? And am I a bad person for not writing for free for them? Everything I've done as an as an academic has been trying to merge broad impact with academic topics, and I feel like that's that's where I my mentality is it can can grasp what I do in a, in the day in day out in academics. So everything I'm I'm doing with this project or all of my writing is trying to take these kind of academic you know, kind of directions and bring it to a mass audience. And I, you know, f for who I am as an individual, I feel like that is you know kind of a, 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 right. a, a kind of I mean, even but grounds. That's what I've been trying to do too. I mean, so all my books are 
uh, like I guess Life Inc. was the first one that really did this, are kind of books that would be academic books, yeah. but then expressed in the plain language of a Neil Postman, you know, in order to try to uh, popularize otherwise complicated ideas. All right, so Douglas, I was on a plane and I was reading Throwing Rocks at uh, the Google Bus, yes. and the, the person next to me uh, on the plane was giving me a really strange look as I was reading your chapter and I thought, what, what am I doing? And, and I look in your, the, the heading of the chapter is eliminating humans from the equation as I'm on an airplane. Uh -huh. And she, she wasn't like, she wasn't liking your cha uh, chapter title. Cause it seemed like it might have a different uh, implication for, oh, that it was for like air travel. It was, uh, it looked like it might've been terrorism directed. Well, so. they are removing humans from <laughs> the equation in air travel. I mean, not just through terror, but you know, the automatic landings and things. And, sure. you know, so it's really going to get to the point where when a, when a pilot has to land the plane, it's like, Oh shit. Oh. I I haven't done this in 40 years. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. But again, but that was, I mean, meant as a, a, a how do you popularize? Yeah. And, and it's because the, the, see, I don't know whether it's that I overestimate, but I feel like, uh, uh, academia underestimates the intelligence of, uh, of people. Yeah. Of real people. But, and then they write in these, in these ways I mean, have you read these journals? Oh, I, know. I mean, why do they write like that? You know, it's 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 almost intentionally obscuring, as if to hide the fact that these are simple ideas. N Neil deGrasse Tyson just had a great piece in the Chronicle here about three weeks ago, where he's talking about his dual hat career. I mean, he's he, he's doing incredible, you know, research as as a scholar, but he's also being you know, really taking these you know pretty complex notions and taking them to a broad society, and he and and doing it kind of on a, a scope that everybody can understand, right. and a you know kind of you know. Just a very well, friendly exactly. man. Astrophysics and, and, for busy people. Well, exactly, yeah. Absolutely. And he, and he says, you know, that that worked really well for his career. And, you know, that's kind of maybe the, the dual hats that many of these you know, researchers need to have. And then there's, you know, others that say, well, come on, that's that's you know, watering down what we do in the scholarship. We shouldn't be our own public. That was another piece recently came out. You know, why should academics be their own publicists? That's not what this is about. And I'm, I'm, I'm caught in this kind of quandary between these two. I mean, I understand that, you know, what we do is you know, research specific and shouldn't be all about publicity but then the other side is if you actually want to have impact on what you do you know you, you gotta you gotta get it out there for actual eyeballs and 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 to to motivate and to you know help to inform a broader society yeah but i mean there's nothing your doctor hates worse or there's nothing your oncologist hates yeah. worse than someone who actually has access to those articles i mean you know People in my family have various diseases, and I go online and try to find out what they are. Yep. And then, again, you hit the paywall sure. on the article that actually has the study that can say whether or not fish oil is going to help, right. you know, something or other. And you read, you were able to read one or two paragraphs, and you don't know. And you can't it, really it, tell. Is it, is it worth that forty bucks to yeah. you know, to read this? And then you you know you pay it, and then it's it's you know totally off base of where right. you thought it was going to go. And so, yeah, I and the abstract has become a sales document. Sure, it is absolutely. I'm am even more concerned that doctors themselves don't have access to the current research, right? And so that's something that, again, that, that was part of the teaching hospital that, that's paying the fee. And well, getting... and this is part of, you know, kind of my film too, talking to a Nepal-based, uh, you know, medical doctor. Does he have access to the current research? No. Can he get access to the current research without paying? No. You know, is is he and is right. he able to con contribute and like his West between are his people going to get antibiotics or is he going to get access get access to read? Really, you know, that's what we're operating. This is the human species we've decided is the best method forward for the planet. Apparently, yeah, no, nobody is. 
And that's what, I mean, that's why these, you know, A, that's why I think these topics get so much traction. B, I think is, I was really concerned I was going to get sued early on in this project because, you know, there's kind of a lot of pushback that I was getting right. for for-profit as publishers. This was getting close to launching. And I was really very concerned, some sleepless nights there. But as this product is, you know, diffused out, and now there's a lot of minnows that are swimming in my school with me. I feel like I have protection by the masses now that I have, you know, 300 and some universities and United Nations right. were at yesterday. I feel like now almost like I have protection because you don't want the publicity backlash of suing this little person, Jason Schmidt, as you know, Elsevier or some other large entity. Well, I mean, a lot of what you're looking at too is the is the collapse of the public sphere. Yeah. But I mean, in the end, the argument and some of these uh, uh, JSTOR people, one of the online things, sure. they live right in my town. I'm yep. one of the lawyers. They argue, well, yeah, but how are the journals going to get paid for? That they're going to go, that they're they're in trouble. They could go out of business. Why do journals have to be expensive? Why do journals have to employ publicists, publicists and graphic designers and you know, consultants and coordinators when the, the real imperture the the function of that journal is a uh, a metric of the scholars that actually partake in the process right that so, everybody involved in the journal i mean and i'm on like two of them yeah. where you basically read two or three articles a quarter and decide you know if they're suitable for publication or if they need to be changed and i imagine in a real field i mean yeah <laughs> as opposed well, to my sort of liberal artsy <laughs> stuff it's not just based on opinion yes. you know but there's like science like oh no birds don't fly like that they fly like this let's talk know? about linguistics right there's a journal called lingua lingua was a long-standing elsevier journal for 50 60 i don't know 60 some years at least uh and the editorial body there was five executive editors and there was 35 uh, uh broader scope editors under them, uh, they all met in kind of you know, quiet conversation and said, hey, let's let's go ahead and flip this away from the for-profit journal model and make this an open access model. If we all do it together, we'll have the same credibility because we're the credibility. It's not right. Elsevier that bestows the credibility. Right. It's all of us. It's the, the commingling of these uh -huh. minds. If we all flip to a open access equivalent, we bring that credibility instantly with us. So they they flipped right. in, uh, about a year and a half ago from Lingua to Glossa, and the the new journal that they created, Glossa, has had incredible impact. It's you know it, it, the, yep. the, the stats are off are are very parallel with what the old Elsevier stats mm -hmm. were. I mean, it's a lot easier for me to justify working for free if everybody else in the room yeah. is working for free. Exactly. I hate when I go and like I get invited to something and I realize, oh my gosh, I'm the only one <laughs> in this room who's not getting paid. <laughs> That's right, exactly. So that you could still the group can still hire, you know, printers and, and secretary, administrative staff and all that. But that's like the university dream of like, wow, what if a university were run by the faculty and the administration was sort of the, the people that we hire to help yeah, sure. administrate our scholarship and teaching? But it kind of reversed now. It's like we work for the administration. Oh, completely. So now we sound Trumpian, don't we? It's those a, damn a, a little bureaucrats. Bit. <laughs> it's a little... <laughs> Paul Ginspark, Archive. You know, we haven't talked about him, and we also haven't talked about Alexander Elbakian and okay. Sci-Hub, but those, I think, both actually need to be unpacked. All right. Uh, you know, um, Paul Ginspark in the early 90s thought, hey, you know, we, we can really connect the physics and mathematics and computer science, and we can create this uh, repository that we all deposit our papers in, so we always all have access to this. Mm -hmm. And that has fundamentally shaped those fields over the long haul. And because, what was his original, what was, to uh, who he originally is. 
Uh, he, um, he's, he's a professor uh, at Cornell University, uh, physics professor, and he, he's uh, been p- pivotal in creating this, this open access repository called archive.org, which ho- houses all of these uh, scholar- scholarly research papers. And is, is funded by Brewster Kale. Is funded uh, by Brewster yeah. Kale, who has actually has helped us with Internet Archive. To, so, so as this film came out, we had, we had docs, uh, Dropbox Pro, and because we were getting so many global downloads trying to download the film, mm-hmm. we kept getting shut down from Dropbox. So Internet Archive came to our, our oh. call and put both the the smaller version as well as the 80 gig, like uncompressed for larger screen format version on Internet Archive. So we no longer had, you know, right, had that problem. That streaming, yeah. You had the multi-billion dollar startup Dropbox. They couldn't support us. And so, you know, luckily a, a nonprofit came our way and in, in a matter of minutes we were you know, successfully supported. So I, I, back to the uh, Paul Ginsberg, I feel like uh, archive.org has played a really you know, pivotal role in, in creating a, uh, a pilot for what a successful discipline or disciplines can do to create an open access community that can empower that broader uh, discipline reach. I feel like there's something there that we can learn from. So you're talking about a, uh, uh, what sounds like what was the internet was supposed to be anyway. Well, that's, so it's like, can that's, we create a safe place? That's when it came place? out, 91, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah it was an early internet. Can, yeah, but can we create a safe place on the internet to do the internet? Yeah, well, that's, that's <laughs> I'm sure the you know when Forbes said that the scholarship was going to be the first domino to fall, they were looking at archive as the model of, well, clearly, if archive can do this, we can, you know, all these other disciplines are going to follow suit. Well, and the reason why scholarship should have been the first one to fall is because scholarship's the one thing that we are doing intentionally for free. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best sentence we've said this whole hmm. this whole thing. I think you know that's great. And so people, you've said Aaron Schwartz t- twice up to this point, but people are willing to put their life on the line and and stand out for causes. And you know, there's been a lot of people that have really stood up strong. And I I think one person that des- deserves more awards and more time person of the year kind of nominations is Alexandria Elbakian with SciHub. What she stood out for and created, SciHub, which is a torrent to download any academic paper, quote unquote, illegally, not that the scholars usually think of it themselves as right. that. Um, she has 65 million uh, articles, uh, research papers on her site now. And if you look at the actual usage rates, you know, it's it's being used all over the globe, but specifically if we're talking kind of in this New England area that we're mm-hmm. at right now, you know, Sciub's being used tremendously uh, within Cambridge. Uh, the most right. privileged people of our society are thinking, you know what? It's such a cumbersome process. The user experience of accessing this and logging in and authenticating yeah. and being home and not and having to do a different authentication process. It's so cumbersome that, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and illegally torrent that even though I'm part of Harvard because it's just easier to go onto her site and, and within two clicks, get the article, it's it's sent directly to me and be done with it. But yeah. why, so why, why isn't she in jail? She's in hiding in Russia and she's been served with multiple injunctions from Elsevier, many millions of dollars, um, and she's staying true to her cause. And because it's tour, they can't shut it down. That's right. Well, it just always pops right back up. And, you know, if, if you go to a site that's SciHub and it's not there, go ahead and you know put in Twitter current site and it'll, you know, there'll be a new link of a, of a new URL and it's it, it continues to live on and it's doing it's healthier than ever in many so ways. So it's like a pirate bay of knowledge. It is a pirate bay of knowledge. And it's empowering my Nepal based colleagues. It's empowering my global South colleagues that, you know, they're the they're the the loss in this 
conversation. They're they're the ones that are paying the, the biggest bill. We're we're talking about the repercussions from cushy offices. I want to empower the those without access instantly. I'm not I'm not going to say well, let's do this incremental for them. You know that and and that's kind of a, that's always the the academic scope. But let's let's do incremental. We're going to roll out open access incrementally. 2002 open access really started as a fundamental movement. The Budapest open um, they they did a Budapest conference on open access in 2002. We're 16 years later and nothing ha- has that tremendously changed. So we need something a little bit more top-down approach. I think that's what Robert Jan Smith's uh, in uh, within Europe and his Plan S is doing is saying, okay, you know, by 2020, a year from now practically, we're going to have open access be the mandate, and anything that's funded is going to have to go through and and be open. I mean, it goes back though to to making trying to make education profitable. You know, it's a, the No Child Left Behind was really for George W. and his friends in Texas to, you know, monopolize textbook sales in the U.S. And yeah. uh, when you when you go back and say, well, wait a minute, what is even the the I mean, there's two different things here. There's the research part of it, which is heinous so that scientists and medical researchers, psychologists can't get access to expensive American research results because there's a few for-profit media companies that want to extract value out of this thing. And make it as scarce as scarce can be. Right. That it's already a commons being enclosed. It's That's a, right. You know, so the, and the commons is still operating from within this giant for-profit enclosure that it's been put inside. Yes. So there's that. Yep. But then that also, it, it corresponds to a shift in education from, even when I heard you talking about the liberal arts school that you're at and these kids graduate you no, know, not, no, yeah, my previous, my, yeah, my previous, not yeah, not college, able to yep. get jobs, and yeah. I'm thinking, since when was the point of liberal arts education to get people jobs? Sure, uh, education, well, certainly public education, was meant as compensation for a life spent working in the mine. That you can come home from work and read a novel and understand it, participate in in democracy as an informed citizen. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a way for corporations to externalize their training programs to the university. I know. I'm, I'm such said, a purist. You, I'm no, such an you're idealist, so good. But... Like I'm, I'm thinking about the whole the you know the state kind of the um what's the land grant land grant initiative. I mean that's you know when the land grant initiative came out. I mean it, it empower talk about an empowering. You have you know multi multi million dollar parcels that could either be used or sold to empower higher education. That that you know that had a uh, economic model that could just be you know pursuit of knowledge for the sake of pursuit of knowledge. And the, the economy at that time, I think, was you know, much more robust. I mean, I love the idea. I mean, in a certain way, if the Pirate Bay of journal articles, yeah, if it really does disrupt the journal industry to the point where Elsevier and Thomson Reuters and all these people, whoever does them, says, screw it, we're going we're gonna to leave the academic uh, journal industry because it stinks, then... We don't even have to convince people to leave to go to the open access. It'll just become an open access thing. But what what's your projection? How is this gonna how is this gonna play out, do you think? The publishers are already divesting away from journals. They know the writings on the wall. They know that they're gonna drag their feet on this and it's you know, they are gonna drag their feet as long as they po- possibly can, which is exactly what I experienced in the record label industry. Same thing that the large you know, uh, labels did when you know, Napster was kind of taking a large swath of the economy. But they're divesting in storytelling narrative for the university and they're going specifically in the data uh, kind right. of 
right. analysis and and how to tell the data of universities and they're going to the provosts and presidents to to tell the impact of that whole university and where everybody's scholarship is going and right really and the, to the, help the help universities compete in the U.S. News and World Report exact, thing and that is how it. to hack that, the, ha the the models hack the model get up there on the, yep yep. <laughs> You want to be a top a market. top twenty university? We can do that. We'll make sure we can you know be able to tell you're not going to have anybody go through the cracks. We you know we have the best uh, you know software available to understand where everybody's publications are going. Right. And so yeah, I mean I think they're already you know massively divesting into those other areas of you know uh, around the higher education system. But I there it's it's not going to be without a a, a major turbulence of you know they're not going to just kind of relinquish um you know these these rights on these these you know high impact journals right. it's it's, it's going to be you know it's going to be kind of a tenacious kind of you know rollout i mean from the team human perspective i mean what you're what you're asking for is really that we retrieve the basic human instinct for sharing you know mimesis and sharing and oh i figured out if you bang on the coconut with this kind of rock it's going to open up and then you get all the stuff inside and you're and you're, you're going to show it to everybody right and, and, and everybody in your village teaches each other and, right. and and how nice is that i mean right so i mean and i think it's your almost whole like we've, we're we're trying to to repress that instinct and uh, and replace it with some false uh uh, uh sense of you know, pride or individual achievement. I'm the guy. You can break the as long as you remember. Give me a penny every time you break a coconut with a rock like that. Yeah. It's like if how would we have ever developed language? It's like okay, the word the. I made that one. <laughs> so I get a penny every time someone That's, uses the, and you get a nickel when they use a. Uh. This is true. No, it's. It uh, the the human conversation. I think is the driving force. It's gonna un that is is. I think the foundations and the larger uh, funders are seeing, you know, open as a way to really impact the broader society and to get the synergistic kind of opportunities for the research they're already supporting. You know, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has a really strong open access push here in the United States, and they want they they know that their funder, their their uh, the scientists that are conducting the research for them are going to publish in open access uh, outlets, and that's helping to synergize those conversations. So from the U.S. angle, you know, the the fund can really play a pivotal uh, pivotal process in the rollout of open access because I feel like that's one of the better levers that we have in a capitalistic kind of U.S. Right. sort of system. Makes sense. The funders, where who holds who holds the money for these grants? Uh, yeah, that's where it's sure as heck isn't these consortia of libraries and these uh, these independent universities. They're not going to come together in a cohort cohesive manner. They they can't. They're in competition. They, they, absolutely, and then they've already signed all these you know non you know, embargoes in this content. So it has to be on the U.S. side, you know, funders that are going to play out a, a big portion in that rollout. Yeah. And luckily, uh, a lot of this doesn't need funding. You know, the research is all happening for, well, for free or yep. by different funding. You true. know, the, the. Many people say there's enough money in the system right now. It's not that we need to find more money. We just have to redistribute how it's in the system. Right. I mean, wouldn't it be fun? Even, you know, I write sometimes for this thing called uh, the, the. Eam, the Explorations in Media Ecology. It's the, you know, Media Ecology, media ecology. little journal yeah, right, stuff. Yeah. But it's like nobody has it. It's not in print or anything. So I just, people have been asking on one of those, uh, one of those academos kind of things. They've been asking for this paper I wrote in it. So I went and I scanned the damn thing that's and funny. uploaded it to, I mean, I guess that's against the rules, but geez, I wrote the thing. 
And no one can get it. No one can click on it. Yeah. We <laughs> we interviewed the uh, uh, assistant professor at Harvard who was at Princeton. And when he was there, uh, he got takedown notices for two of his, uh, his Elsevier um, research papers that were up on Princeton's website as PDFs. And he thought, gosh, you know, th there's literally thousands of PDFs of Elsevier papers on Princeton's site. Why did they just target him and one other colleague? And in our film, he says, well, he thinks that they were just testing the waters. They could easily, there's nothing that's preventing Elsevier from doing a massive web call, crawl, right. figuring out every single uh, uh, paper that's you know, used against the copyright and issuing massive takedown notices, right. but they don't do it because they don't want to anger the source of free labor that they so depend on for this whole process and ecosystem to work out. So he thinks they were just kind of testing the waters to see what would happen if, you know, just send takedown notices for two people, see what Princeton does. And, and so Princeton kind of, I think, wisely pushed back and said no. And, and so after a little bit of a tug, and, a tug of war between legal departments, uh, Elsevier retracted that takedown notice and Princeton protected his ability to have that PDF up. And, you know, so but I, th I feel like there's, uh -huh. the, again, this isn't a normal, like, you know, uh, kind of war because you know, they can't anger the source of free labor that they depend on too much you know it's it's not two right. comp competing sources that you can just go out and punch the other person because then they no longer want to help you so it's it's this really kind of you know it's it's a it's it's you know an opaque system right i mean and that's always and the opacity then protects the system it is this is true yeah completely keep the secrets oh that uh, i i feel like there's the way you prevent solidarity and everything else between everybody yep and, and there's very few markets, I think, that can keep that, keep kind of the opacity the way it is, the, uh, more so than higher education. Everybody's focused on their one pursuit. They're not usually a commutative mindset. If you have a commutative mindset, you're more of an administration. You're not usually on the front lines of the research. And it you know creates more disparity and 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 you know difference of opinions and and l less collective action. And I think that's something that as society we need to stand out on. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I get a lot of people pervert, you know, Stuart Brand and they just use the first half of his information mm -hmm. wants to be free yeah. and they lose the information wants to be protected. But I think you're arguing that information may want to be protected, but it doesn't want to be protected through by being cloistered. It wants to be protected by a community of peers who are, you know, evaluating and and. Uh, uh, helping the rest of us understand whether there's merit or not in it. I think that's absolutely the the correct method, and we live in a society now that we have, you know, we can we can share this scholarship for no extra additional cost. I mean, the ability to you know create and uh, create and research and actually you know format the the piece of research initially. There's cost there, but once that's done, there's no extra marginal cost to disseminate that to a world audience. Right, and it's not like the journal was ever paying for that research to begin with, anyway. Absolutely, no. So it's, it's yeah, the, the, it's the research just a system that's gotten out of control. It's, uh, the 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 tenure system, the academic research system, I think is in you know, fundamental needs of of a revamp. And I think scholars are, you know, inadequate to often do that themselves. If if the last twenty years has taught us anything, so what's what's next for you? Well, so we're we're traveling kind of a crazy amount. I'm 
it's so, and I've, I've been to more university offices and, uh -huh. and more leaders of open access and scholars and editors. It's, it's just been an, a, a really amazing opportunity just to, you know, to interact with so many people and both to talk about the dysfunction, but also to see a lot of the actual functionality and the brilliant people that are in academics and that are really doing this for the right causes. We didn't, you know, go into this because of the, the profit that we're able right. to induce ourselves. We went into this the, for the unencumbered, you know, uh, investigation and you know ability for our minds to go where we want without having you know often other forces uh, you know put on on them and so and it's great to hear you're not tilting at windmills that there are, is a large community out there of people with with skills and means who are promoting this open access there is a lot of people that are promoting this open access. It's rallying cries. I mean, everything's about like, you know, universities are kind of the problem. They can't have a collective voice, but at the same point, I think they all understand that there's a problem and, you know, United Nations bringing us in to, to you know, to talk. I mean, that's signaling. There's a lot of people that understand that this, these right. inequalities are unjust. Right. And that open access is ultimately is a human rights issue. It's absolutely a human rights issue. Thank you for joining Team Human. Oh, happy to be on Team Human. <laughs> Beautiful. And people can most easily watch this movie. And people can most easily watch this movie by going to paywallthemovie.com. It's also on Vimeo. It's on Internet Archive. It's on YouTube. But paywallthemovie.com has all sorts of trailers and other you know, little things as well on it. Fun things and easy little shareable links. Yes. Thanks for listening to Team Human. Our guest today was Jason Schmidt. You can support Team Human and even get a copy of my upcoming book, Team Human, by subscribing to our show. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can also read my columns based on the show's monologues at medium.com slash at Rushkoff. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens next week with new strategies for intervention in the machine. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter. A health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.